First on film and entertainment, delightful to be with you and happy Passover, happy Easter. For those celebrating other religions, please make the best of the next few days, even though it's mighty, mighty cold in Melbourne. Having said all of that, I've got to say I went to Sydney, spent six days there, in fact really five days because we arrived after midnight, saw five shows and two movies. So I'll talk a little bit about that during the course of the program. But we'll also talk about one of the big movies, probably one of the big movies of the year. Gregory King Air is a big film because it's got Ben Affleck, it has got Matt Damon, and it's also got Viola Davis in it. And I suppose when you've got three talented performers like that, well, you'd have to do something very, very badly to get it wrong. And I don't think they've got it wrong. Do you? No, I think it's an interesting film. Who would have thought that a film about the creation of an iconic shoe would have been so fascinating. Exactly. Now, Jackie Hamilton, have you caught up with air? Oh, I certainly have. And my first comment would be that I hope people who are not kind of sports fans would consider going along because it's really not a film about sports at all. And we don't actually even see a lot of basketball going on. What we do see is very relevant. But, um, it's a real pity, is it not, Peter Krause? You who are the doyen of everything who would sport. <laughs> the doyen. I must look that up in my punk and waggle. Exactly. But anyway, <laughs> but uh, no, it's, I agree fully with Jackie. You don't have to have any interest in sports to appreciate the, uh, the, the cut and thrust of the, uh, the negotiations that go on in this film. It's really well written. It is indeed. Now, look, I suppose let's me, let me start by saying, how do you make a compelling film when the outcome is clear for the world to see? That, that, that's kind of my, my opening salvo with this one. Air has the answer because it's a ripper of a movie. It, it really is fun. It's engaging, edge of your seat fair, and it helps when you have the talent such as that which I have described. So you dare not look away for a second. Let's go back to 1984. That's when Nike is known as a shoe brand synonymous with running, not basketball. That is dominated by Converse and, to a lesser extent, Adidas. So Nike's basketball division is on the brink of collapse. Some time ago, the founder, the CEO, a guy called Phil Knight, played by Ben Affleck, brought in shoe salesman Sonny Vaccaro, played by Matt Damon, and he was brought in to help change that. So far, the move has not brought results. In fact, in that regard, the company has gone backwards. Money's really tight. The answers don't seem to be forthcoming until Vaccaro pins all his hopes on a young basketball prodigy that looks like being signed to Adidas. Against the better judgment of several senior Nike executives, Vaccaro makes an all-or-nothing play for Michael Jordan, played by Damian Young, although we don't get to see his face in the entire movie. His pitch, this is Vaccaro's pitch, is to build a style of shoe around Jordan. To do so, he bypasses what are considered the normal protocols, and they dictate going through a target's manager. Instead, knowing full well that he'll inflame Jordan's go-to guy, the manager David Falk, played by Chris Messina, he appeals directly to Jordan's parents. This is Vaccaro going to them. And in this case... It's Jordan's down-to-earth mother, Dolores, Viola Davis, pulling the strings. But to get a deal done, Vaccaro and Knight will have to reinvent the rule book. Knight being Phil Knight, the CEO of, of Nike. It's heavily conversation-driven. 
the script by Alex Convery, I, I really think that hit the mark. The characters really neatly crafted, each with their own peccadilloes. And it's director Ben Affleck who builds this entertaining picture driven by scenes of high drama and comedy. And a big part of that, I thought, was taking the mickey out of his own character, the head of Nike. So there's one unforgettable sequence as well in the invective-laden response when the manager of Jordan discovers that Vaccaro has gone behind his back. That's uh, it's a scene that I won't forget in a real hurry. And overall, I just thought that uh, the character who plays the manager, Messina Milks, the arrogance the, the, which is inherent in that role. He, he knows he holds all the cards until he doesn't. So that's my, my starting point. Pick it up from there, Greg. What did you think of Air? I thought this is um, a really enjoyable film. The script itself is really well done. Um, a lot of punchy, pithy, witty dialogue there. And it develops the suspense as it goes along, even though we know the outcome. It's the journey that's such fun. But I really love the soundtrack, which captures the 80s. Lots of great 80s, 84 music in there. Um, and also the production design, especially of the interior of the Nike headquarters there, was really 80s with those clunky computer monitors and all the office equipment and everything. I thought Affleck and Damon have a really good rapport. It comes out in the scenes that they share together. Um, Jason Bateman was really good here as well in his role there. Um, sort of frustrated but supportive. And I liked Viola Davis. She was really strong here as um, obviously the woman who sort of carries the um, weight in the family, the Jordan family there. And it's interesting, it's a film about or with Ma Michael Jordan at the centre, but you rarely see him. You, when he appears on screen, it's usually shot from the back where he's on the periphery of the frame there, which is an interesting um, choice from Affleck himself. But yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed this film. I thought it was really, really entertaining, despite just, you know, the, what the subject matter was. Exactly. And look, the, the interesting thing to me, I agree with you regarding Viola Davis, this measured dignity, it, it, that's what she's all about, the portrayal of the wily Dolores Jordan. I, I Even though it's a very small role, th there's a bit of a glint in the eye, Jackie, of um, the husband, her husband, James, played by Julius Tennant. I thought he did that very, very well. And I like the sensitivity of Jason Bateman, you know, as the Nike marketing executive, Rob Strasser. And the other one that really caught my eye, the shoe designer. His, name, his real name is Peter Moore, played by Matthew Marr. So the, uh, there was only one character I struggled with, Jackie, and I wondered whether you did as well. And that's Chris Tucker. Now, I think this is his first movie in seven years. And he's this fast-talking Nike heavyweight guy called Howard White. Despite the good nature of his persona, I just... I, I, did you understand anything he was saying? Oh, no, he he was fast-talking, that's for sure. But he also did a bit of that, I think, you know, kind of jive talk or something like that, which to our ears can be... Um, you really have to hear quite a bit of it to get familiar with it. So missed that, but I don't think it really had an effect on the way I felt about the film. And what you've really discussed among that is the number of uh, secondary roles who each had a had a strong part to play, even though they might have been secondary roles, um, that we really felt we got to know these people. It was a people film uh, air and it, uh, we got to know a little of their backgrounds, the character played by Jason Bateman talking about his daughter and therefore showing how much not only did Sonny Vaccaro put his career on the line when he was making this big pitch um, 
and putting, you know, both feet in and more on behalf of the company to get Michael Jordan um, for the new shoe. But um, he was also putting on the line um, those of his colleagues and um, the Jason Bateman character was one of those. But as you mentioned, the shoe designer, what a delightful um, character he was. Again, a small role, but how we remember him. And uh, to see right at the end of the film, one of my favourite parts of films that do this is at the end where we see the real photos or a little bit of video uh, of, of each of these people. He actually looked very like the um, shoe designer at the time, or he had been made up to look very like him, and um, he had a backstory as well. So um, it, for me, it felt the film felt real because we got to know the people. We, um, we believed their dialogue. The scripting was beautiful. And yes, it's a marketing story. It's not really a sports story or even really a shoe story, although it is. It's, a, it's the inside story on marketing and um, putting aside, you know, what we might think about corporate morals and all that today, David and Goliath and a marketing story, which was fabulous. Mm, well, the brilliance in it, Peter, is, is about the fact that it's not about the outcome, it's about this journey. And the journey is quite a compelling one, is it not? It certainly is a very compelling journey. I, I was quite intrigued to read that originally Amazon Prime were going to release the film uh, on streaming only. And uh, when they uh, sent it to test audiences, uh, it rated so highly that they decided to release it cinematically. Oh, yeah. Was, yeah. Uh, and, and the other uh, thing that I found out was that Alex Convery's script, which mm -hmm. everyone is praising, uh, was completely, almost completely rewritten by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck to, uh, to make it uh, a little bit more, um, I suppose, involving uh, for the audience. Uh, and also uh, to attract uh, big names into the cast. So uh, that I found interesting. The opening of the film, I really liked the montage of uh, of various 1980s sequences to get us into the feel and the mood of what it, what the early 1980s was actually like. Uh, look, this is a, a very impressive film. The writing is, is very good indeed, or the rewriting. <laughs> and uh, it was very nice to see the uh, one of the family members of Adidas, in fact, that's how it's it is pronounced in the film Adidas. Mm -hmm. uh, it's good to see the actress Barbara Sukova, who uh, is a, a noted German actress who was in uh, Hannah Arendt playing uh, one of the the key members of the uh, Adidas family. Look, there's a lot to admire and enjoy about this film. the the uh, The story is very clever uh, and really sets us into the mood of this uh, marketing arrangement uh, that eventually turned out to be uh, extremely beneficial for everyone concerned. Greg, what would you give it out of 10? I'll give it 8 out of 10. 8 out of 10 for Air from Greg. And Jackie? Yes, an 8 out of 10. Mm. Peter? Amazingly enough, I also gave it 8 out of 10. And... I gave it an eight out of ten. Has that ever happened? I don't think it has on our program. That can't recall that. Wow. Well, there you go. Terrific. So, folks, go along and see it. Let's go from there to a movie that could have been a heck of a lot worse than it turned out to be. And it's a sort of, I, I know that's sort of um, faint praise, but it's meant to be better than that. Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves. It's a rollicking ride, and, and it's based upon the fantasy tabletop role-playing game, which was first published in 1974. Humour-filled, impressive special effects, 
Many Near Escapes for the Heroes of the Peace, written by Jonathan Goldstein, John Francis Daly, Michael Gillio, directed by Goldstein and Daly. And look, the plot is quite convoluted, but at its essence is the quest for power and control. Chris Pine plays Edgar Darbus, who's been jailed after a heist went wrong. Used to be a clean skin that his wife was murdered. He raised their daughter, Kira, played by Chloe Coleman, with his friend, Holger Kilgore, Michelle Rodriguez. She is also in prison with him for the same crime. They were chasing a precious magical artifact that would give him the chance to resurrect his dead wife when their best laid plans were derailed by evil red wizard Safina, role filled by Daisy Head. Her agenda remains to create an army of the undead. Now, Darvis and Kilgore are planning to escape so he can be reunited with his daughter. In their absence, she's been cared for by a man that Darvis regarded as his friend. And I speak of Forge Fitzwilliam. Hugh Grant fills that role, who's in fact an ambitious rogue and con artist. He, who exudes charm and has hoodwinked Kira into believing that he really cares about her, has formed a dangerous alliance with the Red Wizard, who I mentioned earlier, Safina, Daisy Head is the one who plays her. So peril awaits at every turn as Darvis and Kilgore join forces with a sorcerer called Simon Orbar, played by Justice Smith, and a druid Doric, Sophia Lillis, to try to thwart the evil that awaits. Now, it's quite long, nearly two and a quarter hours. Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, it does move at pace, with challenges to be overcome by our heroes. And I've got to say that, I mean, Hugh Grant plays Hugh Grant very well, does he not, Jackie? Oh, I was a bit of it. He, he was my one disappointment. Really? Him, Alex? He does it. He plays himself all the time and he does it yeah, well. No, 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 no. In, uh, was it The Gentleman? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. The, um, uh, Ridley, um, no, 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 sorry. Uh, in The Gentleman, he he stepped out of that character and he be, and I think he was quite different and I loved being refreshed with the I kind of actor he could so you, you didn't find Hugh Grant sort of... He had a wow of a time as this conniving Fitzwilliam. I thought that was a fun role. But, I didn't think his, the personality he put across with the Hugh Grant grin suited the villainous character that he was meant to be. Okay, fair enough. Didn't, didn't work for me, but I might say it was probably the only thing that didn't work for me. Mm. I went in... Not particularly looking forward to seeing any dungeons or any dragons. I agree. Or any, um, any, any, um, you know, games to be played. But I was swept away right from the start. Here we go, Chris Pine. You're, you're a legend. Um, he took me to Guardians of the Galaxy. It took us to The Hobbit. It took us to the landscapes of Lord of the Rings and every other fantasy film. It was fabulously imaginative. The, the scenery and the detail and even these little subplots were incredibly detailed. So much effort and story building around, you know, little maybe two-minute subplots off to one side. Um, we really built it into a, a very solid, exciting adventure. It was a quest. We got to know the characters really well. They worked together well. Michelle Rodriguez was fantastic. Fabulous as the as the physical strength of the team, really. Uh, she really stood out for me. And they gr made a great partnership and 
fam- sense of family. Oh, what a ride. Love, absolutely love Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, it, it is interesting because there were so many threads that, Peter, you could very reasonably have thought, oh, well, they'll lose one or another along the way, but they all came together, didn't they? It certainly did. I, I mean, it, this is the fourth film version of uh, Dungeons and Dragons, and they've reimagined uh, the uh, uh, original uh, game and all that sort of thing into something much more interesting, much more amusing. In fact, I, I liked the tongue-in-cheek quality of uh, a lot of the writing that's in the film. And I also uh, need to uh, shout out to so many Australians who were involved in the special effects. The uh, It's amazing how many films now have CGI that's been created by Australian um, computer creators, which is absolutely fantastic. I really enjoyed it. A rollicking good story, uh, clever characters, some really uh, very clever special effects at times. They were really quite astounding and tongue-in-cheek. And I actually liked Hugh Grant. I thought uh, as yes. the uh, as the villain, he reminded me of his role in Paddington 2 uh, and in some other films that he's done where he's sort of, he, he's on the periphery of whether he's uh, he's a villain or whether he's uh, someone who might be trustworthy. And, uh, and I like the way he plays that. Look, uh, very enjoyable film, very well shot. Uh, and, uh, yeah, definitely uh, recommend it. Greg, did you enjoy it as much as we did? I haven't seen this yet because of my dismal experience of trying to see it at Clown Casino last weekend. I haven't had a chance yet. Yes, yes do, 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 do tell us. Do tell us briefly about that. Uh, yeah, when the, when the, um, I went to a public screening of it, when it started, there was no sound. You've got, the tra- you know, you've got 25 minutes of trailers and mm. ads and all that kind of stuff before the feature starts. They started going, there's no sound on, on any of you. So I went out and complained to the um, lovely lady in the county bar there. And she said, yep, she reported to the manager and they'd fix it up. And after about 15 minutes, nothing had happened. And then music starts playing, you know, like the music they play when you're walking into the cinema. Played over everything, still no sound. Um, and then I went out and mentioned this again. The manager came and said, yep, they try and fix it. And then the film started, still no sound and music playing. And I, after about 10 minutes, I had enough. I walked out and complained. And sent a letter to Village. I just got a formal letter back saying uh, they pride themselves on the sanitary production of the projection and they look into it. But this seems to be a problem that happens too often. And I just haven't had the time to go back and surprise there again. Fair enough. All right. Well, with all of that, Jackie, a score out of 10, please. Oh, for Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, a definite 8 out of 10. Mm, and Peter? Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. 7 out of 10 from me. And a 7 out of 10 for me. There we go. Okay, so let's go to a very, I think, a sensitive movie that I must admit surprised me because I knew nothing about it going in, called Linoleum. It's this quirky, feel-good, sci-fi, comedic drama, and it concerns a decent man of science in Ohio. He's always been, well, he's a spy, shall we say, to become an astronaut. His name is Cameron Edwin played by Jim Gaffigan. He hosts a local late-night children's TV science show. What, one thing I didn't understand is why they put on a, a children's TV program at midnight, but maybe one of you can explain that, that title the show Above and Beyond. And one day a strange thing happens. This red sports car crash lands on its roof in front of Cameron Edwin, seemingly having fallen from space. Now, if that isn't bizarre enough, It contains a man named Kent Armstrong, also played by Gaffigan, who very much resembles him, right? So the the two characters played by the same same man resemble one another. How surprising. 
Now, for a couple of years, Edwin has been promised a better time slot for his children's TV program. Then he's blindsided and sidelined. Program has been picked up by the network with a different host, namely his doppelganger. And if Edwin chooses to stay on, it will be as the show's creative consultant. Now, all this goes down as his wife, Erin, played by Rhea Seahorn, who used to host Above and Beyond with Edwin, is preparing to leave him. They're preparing to separate. As yet, though, they haven't told their children. The children, a headstrong daughter named Nora, played by Caitlin Nacon, and a doting younger son. Nora takes a shine to a new kid at school called Mark. Gabrielle Rush is the one with that role, who turns out to be Kent Armstrong's son. So this is the, the new guy in charge of the program, TV program. Most importantly, a satellite drops from the sky and into Cameron Edwin's backyard, opening up a sea of possibilities. So there's far more in linoleum than it first meets the eye. It's only in the third act that it all comes together. I, I thought it, it's really been cleverly conceived and executed by the writer and director Colin West, providing ample room for contemplation about the human condition, because that's what it's really all about. And although uh, the, the character of Edwin has received a measure of success, something has always held him back. The routine of it all appears to have gotten to his wife, while Nora, the daughter, is trying to find her place in the world. I was really engaged by what is a rather mysterious chain of events. I was eager to learn more, and I thought that Jim Gaffigan was eminently watchable in the couple of roles that he had. He was personable in one, bombastic in the other, and Seahorn, the, the wife, plays tightly strung with conviction. I thought the daughter had personality to burn, so... It's really big on creativity, this one, and, and charm, Peter, is it not? It certainly is. It's nice to see these independent U.S. sci-fi films that uh, that are really very cleverly written and uh, have good ideas. I think that the reference to why uh, the uh, science show that he was hosting at the start of the film was on at midnight was because uh, his show had been losing ratings and had been moved um, to a, a later time slot. But, but, you ever, but you would never put a kid's a kid show on at midnight, is what I'm saying. Regardless of whether it's losing ratings, you then you then drop the show. That doesn't make sense. Well, it's obviously a TV network that is a little bit unusual. Yes, I agree with that. Yeah, <laughs> but, but no, I really enjoyed the story. And you have to be a very attuned to the way the story develops. For me, the film reminded me a great deal of Donnie Darko. And yes. this idea of, of, of time travel and to some extent, and of characters uh, changing and developing. And and what is so good about this film is it is a very human sort of story. And you'll notice the time shift that happens in the film later on, which I won't explain any further. But no, this is a really good character study uh, of someone's hopes and dreams uh, and of their life journey. Uh, and that's what I found so fascinating about this film. Uh, and you don't need a big budget to tell a good story like this one. And that and this one is a very good example. And, and uh, Greg, I mean, the thing about it, it, it just surprises. There's elements here that you could not have picked. And it's so unusual. Like, there, there are not too many. I, I mean, I agree, Donnie Darko, I can understand Peter's reference to that. But, yeah, where creativity is required, where individuality is required, this one ticks those boxes, doesn't it? Well, I'm afraid I'm still scratching my head over this one. Um, gentlemen, I 
didn't quite get it all. Um, it sort of had me scratching my head. Um, there's some interesting elements to it. I mean, it was beautifully shot. Production design was all exquisite. And Jim Gaffigan was good there, but I'm afraid I got lost in it somewhere. And I, Peter referenced Donnie Darko. For me, this one reminded me more of Adrian Lyons' Jacob's Ladder, in which um, Tim Robbins was um, troubled by disturbing visions. And um, the revelation there made a lot more sense than the one here. Sorry, but yeah, it does deal with some wonderful themes like the human condition, failed dreams, and the fragility of life. But uh, yeah, no, this one didn't click with me. And I think a lot of people might struggle to understand or comprehend what's going on here. Jackie, what about you? Um, I think struggling to understand it is part of the part of what it's actually about. Mm. Um, because certainly I struggled. I, I'm a, I like logic and I like to understand what's going on. But I quite enjoyed the gentle mm. oddities about this film that made me really try to put it together in my head as it was progressing and knowing that I was being teased a little by the way that it was structured and there were little clues all the way along that it wasn't all as it seemed. Someone's got a lot of static going on in this um, on this line. Um, but um, I quite enjoyed that and I, I trusted that it would come together at the end, which it does, but you really need to allow yourself to kind of make those pieces connect. Oh, there's a lot of static. Yeah, there is a lot of static. I mean, I just thought it was earnest and it was also endearing. I mean, that they're, they're the sort of qualities that I look for in a movie, and I, I, I thought this had it in spades. And it doesn't come together until the third act. I like that. I, I thought that worked very, very well. What are you going to give but it Alex, out? Alex, I think it also did a big shift because I spent probably half of the film thinking it was a family film, very kid-friendly and, you know, uh, and something we could all sit together on the couch and watch. And then it kind of did a big shift and it started covering a lot of ground in unexpected areas like, you know, teenage queerness and dementia and and energy versus kind of career atrophy and all those sort of really big big um, uh, questions in through life. And so I kind of shifted my thoughts on it about halfway through as well. Yeah, it's, it's M-rated and uh, it's M-rated for, for a very good reason. Score out of 10 from you, Jackie? Uh, six and a half out of 10. Mm-hmm. Great. Look, it's trying to give it five. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, Peter, you and I are going to give it higher scores. Go for it. <laughs> I gave it seven out of 10. And I gave it seven and a half out of 10. So there you go. Okay, well, that, I mean, this is the first one where there's been quite some division. Let's talk about another one where, you know, I'm, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's division. Uh, Alleluia, and that's A-L-L-E-L-U-J-A-H. So don't do Hallelujah if you're looking for it. I cannot think of too many films I've detested more. That That's my starting point. It's a British drama written by Heidi Thomas and directed by Richard Eyre. And by the way, I don't detest many movies or many anythings. It's based on a play by Alan Bennett that was out in 2018, which was also called Alleluia. And it's about this small geriatric hospital called the Bethlehem in West Yorkshire. It's threatened with closure due to National Health Service funding cuts. The most loyal of staff is a doctor called Valentine, played by Bailey Gill for whom nothing to do with patient care is ever too much. The head nurse is Sister Alma Gilpin, played by Jennifer Saunders, about to be honoured for her services to the Beth, the hospital. A film crew invited 
to the facility to document a volunteer-led effort to save the institution from closure. That includes interviewing the chairman of the board, Mr. Salter, played by Vincent Franklin, and several residents, including Ambrose, Derek Jacobi. One person who is not interviewed, but who's given an iPad to record her experiences, is a retired librarian called Mary Moss, played by Judy Dench, or Dame Judy Dench. Arriving at the hospital to visit his sick father, who happens to be a former coal miner called Joe, played by David Bradley, is a management consultant to the health secretary, a man known as Colin Coleman, played by Russell Tovey. And he's the one who's recommended closure of the facility to the health minister or health secretary. But again, like in the last movie, there's a lot more going on in this film than it first meets the eye. And it takes a, a shocking turn in the final act. Now, I, I wonder whether any of you felt as strongly as I did about this film. That really, that shocking turn is the only time I became even vaguely interested in anything to do with this otherwise extremely boring, slow and laboured film. The whole thing looked and felt manufactured. I thought I was watching a really bad play. Obviously, it is based on a play. Most of the elderly patients were nothing more than caricatures. It's mired in what I consider to be paternalistic nonsense. Looked like a PR exercise extolling the virtues of caring for patients, which is a no-brainer. And when Bailey Gill, or Jill, no, it's Gill, I presume, as Dr. Valentine broke the fourth wall to speak directly to us, the audience, it actually made my skin crawl. And if you want to know what dull looks like, simply try to sit through the first five-sixths of Alleluia. Nothing happens. I was constantly looking at my watch, pleading for the film to take off. And to me, that gets down to the writing and the direction, because you've assembled a decent list of actors, a very decent list. So here's the bottom line. If you're considering seeing Alleluia, please think again. I wished I had less than five minutes after I entered the cinema, Jackie. Yes, and I'm so glad that I saved myself two or three hours. Would have much preferred that you went to see The Pope's Exorcist or Broker. Indeed. which That's my say. With. Very good. And, okay, so Gregory King, did you like it more than I did? Not much by the sound of things, Alex. I thought the ending was appalling. And, um, uh, yeah, again, a bit a big turn-off there. And it's such a shame because it's got a great cast, including Judy Gench, Derek Jacoby, who deserved much better than this. Um, and I just thought it was patronising. Um, yep. And Alan Bennett has written much better plays like The History Boys and everything. I don't know what was wrong here. It's just, no, it's, um, I found it dull, boring, and um, just wasted my time. But I wonder, Greg, I mean, you've got a name as a playwright, Alan Bennett. So if you've got talent of the likes that we've just described, I imagine that you'd sign on the dotted line because of that. But, gee, just because you've got a reputation, I, I, I'm just amazed that they couldn't see through this. Peter, did, did you, did, I mean, you, you're usually uh, contrary in many areas. Uh, did you think this was a work of genius? I wouldn't use the word genius, but I think this is a, a better film than you're giving it uh, credit for. Um, Alan Bennett, uh, in some of his plays, has been, and we need this context, has been a, a trenchant critic of the uh, underfunding of the yes. National Health Service in the UK. Sure. That's, but, but, sorry, Peter, let me stop you there. That's absolutely fine. But when you're going to then make a PR exercise, I mean, it, it's cloaked, cloak and dagger stuff. To me, put it out as a, a non, non-movie. non Put it out as some sort of uh, 
uh, I don't know, show on, uh, put it as a commercial or whatever. But I just don't think it, it's so entrenched in a particular position that shoved down my throat. I can't stand that. Could, could you fathom that? Look, I, I didn't mind that at all because uh, the film is presented uh, initially anyway as a comedy, as a, uh, a a really humanistic look at geriatric patients, older patients in this hospital ward and of the possible consequences of that uh, geriatric ward closing because of lack of funding. I think there are some really nice elements in it. I really like Derek Jacoby. Uh, I really like Judy Dench. I, I like the way that they inhabit their characters without being clownish or demeaning. And what is so interesting is the Jennifer Saunders character who is presented in a particular way and then it changes and develops. And we see that through the prism of that doctor who then breaks the fourth wall. I, I did not mind that at all because this film is trying to make a number of comments and it is a dramedy rather than a comedy that it's ostensibly set up to be. Um, and Richard Eyre is very good at uh, harnessing his characters uh, as the director. Uh, Russell Tovey's uh, character, who uh, plays a gay uh, simple servant who is there to close the hospital, mm. has his father in the hospital and understands and starts to learn about the issues and difficulties of old age. I think there are some really nice elements in this film. Uh, I think the ending is a little bit of a shock, uh, the revelations, but nevertheless... It's, it's, it's just it, it turned tail and ran in the other direction. Well, I'm not so sure. I think it, it sort of fits the process of this film and the uh, if you listen to the dialogue very carefully near the end of the film, you'll understand where Jennifer Saunders' character is coming from and of the system that she inhabits and the politics behind it all. So, look, I think there's a, a fair bit to admire about the film. It's not a work of genius. No, it's not a great film. But it is, I think, a better film than uh, some of you perhaps have given it uh, credit for. Well, you give me a score out of 10, Peter. Well, I, I gave it 6 out of 10. Wow, oh, you passed it. Greg, did you? Uh, 5 out of 10, if that... Yeah, I gave it a two. This is this is on my worst films of the last twelve months list, without any question of doubt. And yeah, that look, it just bothered it. It really irritated me. And that you know that that's not the purpose. When when you're there and you're sort of thinking, oh my golly, within five minutes you want to get out of there. That is not a good sign. You are on Jair eighty eight FM, and I want to talk a, 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 as much as I can in the few remaining minutes. And you can jump in at any time, boys and girls. Uh, at about some of the things that I'm seeing and will see. Now, there is something on a Chapel Off Chapel, which is coming up very, very soon, the 14th and 15th of April. And it's the songs of Naylan and Peel. And one of them wrote to me, and I, I admire that. These are Green Room nominated writers, Conan Naylan and Jackson Peel. They, uh, according to the conversation I had with one of them, uh, they're, they're both Whopper graduates. And there's this sort of intimate night of Australian musical theatre writing talent because that's what they do. They write musical theatre and you know I love that sort of stuff. So there's a couple of nights that they're going to be performing on and that is obviously the 14th and the 15th at Chapel of Chapel, one of my favourite places in Paran. So I, they, they put together a number of different shows in, in different uh, places and all of some of the, the, the best writing comes out of 
you know, the, the young talent that we have in this country. So I want to encourage people to go along and see it. The songs of Nalan and Peel, 14th and 15th of April at Chapel of Chapel. That is a starting point. Now, do you, did any of you see the, if you like, Vietnam War inspired movie, ro- not movie, a show, Rolling Thunder Vietnam? Oh, okay. It is amazing. It is apt. It's one of the best shows I've ever seen. Deeply emotional, richly rewarding musical and narrative experience. Takes you to the heart of the highly divisive war, which, well, I I was reading about this yesterday and I I didn't realize, do you know how many Vietnamese, let alone anybody else, were killed in that war? As many as two million civilians. I mean, it's it's shocking as just terrible. And more than a million fighters, Vietnamese fighters. And of course, 523 Australians lost their lives there as well, and and nearly 60,000 Americans. So this is, I mean, Greg, you're going to love this because you got- I know it's got a great soundtrack. Oh, 20 songs. Um, I would, I. it was a very unusual thing. I, again, out of the blue, received an invitation to attend the final dress rehearsal of, of this show. And there were some really big names, I'm not going to spoil it for anybody, uh, who were actually at, in attendance. And I was kind of fortunate. I'd never seen this. This was in a big music studio. So I went along on uh, Thursday morning, last Thursday morning, and wow, it was just really special. We got numbers from Rolling Stones, Creedence Clearwater Revival, Gladys Knight, Billy Thorpe, Paul Simon, Steppenwolf, and many, many other legendary artists, things like Black Magic Woman, Bridge Over Troubled Water, The Real Thing, Magic Carpet Ride. It is going to be fantastic. It's going to be touring from the 15th of April to the 10th of June. Just look it up, Rolling Thunder Vietnam. It was a really unusual experience because you, you, you get five-piece band there as well, and they sung their lungs out. The talent involved in this is, is excellent. So it's really worth seeing. Just look it up, Rolling Thunder Vietnam, and that's one to think about. It's not going to come to Melbourne for, for a few months. You've got plenty of time. It's going to be at the Palais, among other places. But um, it's touring the country and it'll be uh, elsewhere as well. So that's one to check out. Now, I also went along to see, are you familiar with Miss Saigon? Have, have, has anybody seen the, the musical? No? Okay. You have? Oh, good. Okay. So there's various versions of Miss Saigon, right? So you've got an opera version, you've got a ballet version, you've got a musical theatre version, just to name three that I can think of. Now, this is once a year... Opera Australia, through Handa Opera, H-A-N-D-A, put on an outdoor opera, which basically has as the backdrop Sydney Harbour. So you've got the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge. And it is amazing. Absolutely amazing. What a splendid and spectacular. You can, I don't think you're going to get anything like this anywhere in the world. So as an experience, for those of you who haven't done this, it is absolutely worth doing at least once in your life. So... It obviously depends upon the weather. We had the most perfect weather in Sydney in terms of this show because it was at, at night when it, it's on at sort of 8 o'clock, you've got 20, 21, 22 degrees. So lovely, absolutely terrific at this time of the year. So having said that, uh, I won't go into a lot of detail about the story, but what I will say is the, the music, the, the staging, absolutely soaring. It is just amazing. And... The pyrotechnics associated with it as well, and the staging, which I just mentioned, you've got a 
marriage scene and you've got full-on fireworks over Sydney Harbour <laughs> to, to celebrate this wedding. Then you've got a speedboat arriving, right? I mean, wow. And, and you've got town cars. It's just so unusual and you could never do this inside. So that's why I'm saying it's a very, very special experience. I would urge people to go along and see it. And you've got alternative casts because you can't expect opera singers to, to do this night after night after night. It's a brilliant production, absolutely marvellous. And I commend Opera Australia and Handa Opera for Madama Butterfly. It's M-A-D-A-M-A Butterfly. It's at a place called Mrs Macquarie's Point, which is in the Botanic Gardens. So you've only got a limited amount of time to see it next few weeks. If you happen to be going to Sydney, it is well worth seeing. That is just one of the shows that I saw, and I better quickly cast an eye. I've got a little bit of time left, which is terrific. So I, I want to talk about uh, a a new show, which, well, there, there are two new ones. Do you remember, I'm sure all of you would, the, I think it was 2016, Denzel Washington put out a movie, he directed it as well and starred in it, called Fences. Did, yep. did you? Yeah? Yes. yes. Fabulous film. Wasn't it yes. a fabulous movie? And it was... With Viola Davis, I think. Yes. Yes, indeed. In fact, Viola Davis won an Oscar, if I'm not mistaken, as a supporting actress. Uh, and Washington, am I right that he was nominated for Best Actor and also for Best Picture? He didn't win either of them. Uh, and, and the uh, writer of the piece, August Wilson, was posthumously nominated for uh, a screenplay, Best Adapted Screenplay. Anyway, this was a play, and it is now a play in Sydney. It's just started at Wharf One Theatre. And we're among African-Americans in a working-class suburb in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in the 1950s. Now, the the interesting role here is the one played by Bert LeBont, who, who plays the Denzel Washington character. Really hard man to stomach. And he's a garbage collector, my way or highway approach. Sometimes the choices he makes are decidedly ordinary. And his upbringing was far from desirable. Turned out to be a far better than average baseball player, but he never made it into the big league. And he's got a son in his mid-30s who's, who's sort of always short of money. He's a wannabe professional muso, doesn't want a regular job, and that doesn't please his father, the guy I just spoke about, the Bert LeBond character. And now with his second wife, Rose, played by Zara Newman, whom he married 18 years ago, the pair has a teenage son called Corey. And... Corey shows a great deal of promise as a baseballer. A recruiter is actually interested in him. He's still at school. But the father, Troy is his name, the father is dead set against that path for him and clashes between father and son are inevitable. Troy, the, the mainstay in this production, also has a brother who suffered brain damage on the battlefield during the Second World War. And then the other character is Troy's best mate, fellow Garbo, who basically uh, learns a lot from from Troy, but uh, also sees uh, some problems in the, the 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 character that he is. This won the Pulitzer Prize for drama for August Wilson. So this was 1987. It is a monumental work. It is brilliantly performed. Uh, I mean, I I was just a gog at some of the performances in this particular production and it is well well worth seeing really fine direction from sari sevens it's compelling theater of the highest order i greatly appreciated it 
if you get the chance to see it, as I say, this is Sydney Theatre Company, uh, STC. It is on until the 6th of May, so you've got plenty of opportunity to see it. The other thing that has just opened in Sydney, uh, I'm not sure whether any of you have read about it, but uh, Julia, the Julia Gillard story. Jackie, do you have you read about it? Oh, yes, certainly read about that. Absolutely. It's a defining moment in Australian history, really, Australian political history. So I ask you a question, and this is to all of you. When is the right time frame to make a movie, to put on a production, to write a book about somebody who is still with us and many, many of who many of us would still know about? And I ask this in the context of, well, the Shane Warne uh, sort of piece that was on television. It, it, you know, what, when is it a bit icky to use a current word? to do something like this and when is it appropriate? Has anybody got a view on that? Well, I don't think it's icky, but when we've had an opportunity for a little bit of hindsight and to be able to reflect on the impact it might have had, that's enough and that will depend each time on what the event is that we're looking back on. Yeah, that's a fair, that, look, that's a fair call. This one, I don't know whether you, you know the actress Justine Clark. she plays Julie. Certainly, she used to be uh, on uh, children's TV a lot. And, yeah, um, yeah. yeah, well, brilliantly displayed. She shows determination, indignance and frustration as Julia Gillard. But yet, now, when I mention the playwright, you must have heard of Joanna Murray-Smith. So, Joanna Murray-Smith's words. Now, this is contentious because I. this is how I'd put it. One's political predilection will have a fair say in how her words go down because she's combined fact and fiction and she's taken incendiary language from shock jocks from political opponents from allies to heighten the drama and included liberal use of the f word and in so doing she's effectively crafted a love letter to julia gillard now there's absolutely nothing wrong with that but it's not a bad idea to know what you're buying into and i've got to say the audience many of them gave gave it a standing ovation so i mean you know the performance was wonderful no question about that but yeah it's i mean as this country's first female leader, Gillard had to put up with far more than her male counterparts, and I, I refer to blatant misogyny and a lot more. And as seen in this play, she was frequently referred to by her first name. That's the reason it's obviously been called Julia, which the, the intimated showed a lack of respect. In other words, you, mind you, I was thinking about this. Would John Was John Howard called John by some? I, I suspect he may have been. I don't know. But oh, Johnny little Johnny as a, a detraction. That's true, Greg. Yeah, there, there we go. I mean, but in this case, and I, I, I firmly remember this, I'm sure all of you will. I mean, Julia Gillard was called out for her appearance. I mean, that's just, I'm sorry, that's just not acceptable. For her choice of clothing, for her unmarried status, for her decision not to have children. And you think about New Zealand's most recent Prime Minister before this one, and you think about the same thing. Some of the questions that, that she had to put up with, I mean, so this is, this is a play that goes into that sort of detail and it leads up to, do you recall a famous retort during question time in Parliament? Uh, there was a motion put by the opposition leader, T Tony Abbott, and Julia Gillard gave far more than she got. That's the, if you like, the monologue that closes this particular work and it leads up to, to all of that. So, look, I, I mean, I suppose that uh, an interest in and an appreciation of politics would be a benefit. But regardless, the way that Justine Clark carries herself throughout the delivery style, she's got her affectations, her, her confidence and zest. 
quite infectious. And, and she carries us on a journey. I applaud her efforts in what, well, it's undoubtedly an emotionally taxing role. So, you know, I'm not sure that Julie is going to be for everybody, but it's very, very well done. They use a, I mean, there's one other character on there, a, a young woman called, uh, played by Jessica Bentley. And from time to time, she brings simple props onto the bare stage, even participates in a short dance sequence while responding to Gillard's towering address at the end of the production. And they also use video footage. That's another device that the director, Sarah Goods, used, uses to enliven proceedings and provide visual appeal. It's 90 minutes without interval, and it's on now at Drama Theatre at Sydney Opera House until the 13th of May. So that's another production that I had the good fortune to to catch up with. And the, the other one, now, how familiar are most of you? I know that she's done a lot of TV work. Claudia Carvin. Uh, Peter, do, do you know much of her work? Oh, absolutely. A great actress, been in many, many films. Yeah, she has. And she was in another, uh, this is the third Sydney Theatre Company uh, production, which is now finished, unfortunately. I hope it comes to Melbourne. I remember seeing it at MemTC. Greg, you used to subscribe all the time. The Goat or Who is Sylvia? Do you remember that? No? Um, not really. Oh, okay. It's a really quirky story. And Claudia Carvin is just monumental in it. Absolutely. Really smart. It's an outrageous Tony Award winning tragedy comedy. Actually won Best Play in 2002. Written by Edward Albee in the year 2000. And I tell you something you get a lot more than you bargained for in this particular production. I remember being gobsmacked when I saw it 20 years ago. I was just as gobsmacked now. And it, it's all about, uh, in short, uh, a form of sexual activity that you you could not possibly countenance in any way, shape or form. That's what it's about. I hope to get it here again in Melbourne. I think it would be wonderful because it was a brilliant production, The Goat or Who is Sylvia. And did any of you see the, uh, the, it was a production by, just trying to, trying to remember, I think it was uh, Barbara Streisand in the year, my recollection is about 1970, on a clear day you can see forever. Peter, did you see that? Uh, absolutely, yes, I remember that film. That was oh, like, Eve Montande, I think. Ah, did anybody else, Greg, did you see it? Uh, not that I can recall, though. Okay. Well, what a hoot. Now, what they've done here, Peter, is they've reversed the original play. And when I say they, there's a performer called J. James Moody, who's the artistic director of an organisation called Squabologic Independent Music Theatre. And they've adapted to the present day on a clear day you can see forever. So the key character in this one is somebody who is uh, uh, let, he he's gay, but he wasn't originally gay but he is here and he's both he's he's both he plays both gay and straight characters and it's all about somebody uh going back in time and being reincarnated that's what this is about and it's done really really well the the talent involved in this a lot of these people have been in lots of musical theater before and you can really tell from their their speaking voices i i thoroughly recommend this i I didn't know what to expect. It's on at a place called the Seymour Centre. I hadn't been there before, but I suppose it's kind of like a chapel off chapel venue in Sydney. And we were staying in the city, so we sort of walked everywhere. All of these the theatres are within sort of uh, two, two to three kilometres maximum of the centre of, uh, of town. We took our time. We took an hour or 
more to get to these places, but it was well worth seeing. This is this is sort of um, only on in, until next week. You've only got till the fifteenth of April, so if you happen to be going up to Sydney, it's uh, it's it's worth seeing in the meantime. But I, I really enjoyed it. I didn't know what to expect, didn't know what to anticipate, but the talent is great. The way they've put the production together is really ent- entertaining, and that's that's all you want from from any sort of show. So yeah, I, I would again commend that to you. And then we saw, as I say, a couple of movies as well. So it was a well worth doing. I, I'm hoping that uh, if I get an invite again next year, I mean, you do this, Greg. You go up there and you, you you see and do things in a in a different city. The only sad part about Sydney, and I suppose you could say this about Melbourne as well, uh, there was a lot of homeless and there were a lot of people with mental health issues that were wandering about the, the centre of town. Now, Greg, you live in Melbourne in the centre of the city. Uh, you, you're near Marvel Stadium, not the other end. Do you see much of that on a day-to-day basis? Depending on which end of the city I go to, but yeah, there's often a lot of homeless people in the streets there, um, especially down the end of Elizabeth Street, near Flinders Street Station end of town there. That sort of seems to be one of the big um, points where a lot of them congregate. Yeah, look, unfortunately, my wife felt unsafe, which is not what you want. And, you know, I suppose... felt unsafe in Sydney. You've never felt, well, no, she did. And uh, she basically, we, we stayed near Hyde Park and we walked from sort of Hyde Park to various places. But, you know, I having having said that, uh, she felt a lot better during the day. But even, even so, um, the one thing that I really also... Oh, Alex, Alex, your wife is wise to feel unsafe anywhere after dark. <laughs> yes, I think that's absolutely true. The, the one thing that was really positive, of course, was the train. Will we ever get one? From the airport to downtown Sydney, oh, that, not in our lifetime, I don't think. Oh, what a jo- what an absolute joy, folks! Thank you very much for being part of First on Film and Entertainment, Jackie, Greg, and Peter. A pleasure to be with you again, and we'll do it all again in seven days' time. <laughs>